This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 2008, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2008. We also make the case for you to vote for the White Stripes to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And our Spotlight Museum is the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame in Memphis, Tennessee. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2008. In music, Spotify started, first in Sweden before, of course, eventually going worldwide. A fire on the back lot of Universal Studios in Hollywood, California, destroyed master tapes of legendary music that had been stored in a warehouse on the back lot. After having a very public meltdown in 2007, Britney Spears started the very early part of January by being hospitalized for mental illness. Miley Cyrus officially put her Disney-era image to bed with a semi-nude cover photo shoot in Vanity Fair magazine. Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers became famous due to the Disney Channel TV movie Camp Rock, then skyrocketed once more that year when the daughters of then-presidential candidate Barack Obama disclosed that they were huge fans of the Jonas Brothers. Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube also in 2008. DJ AM and Travis Barker of Blink-182 were involved in a horrific private plane accident that killed four other people. DJ AM would commit suicide a couple of years later, reportedly due to not being able to deal with the pain from the injuries suffered in the accident. Other famous artists who passed away in 2008 included Dave Matthews Band member Leroy Moore, Margaret Truman, not the former First Lady, Freddie Hubbard, Eartha Kitt, Odetta, Mitch Mitchell, Edie Adams, Jeff Healy, Richard Wright, Isaac Hayes, producer Jerry Wexler, Ronnie Drew, Johnny Griffin, Joe Stafford, Bo Diddley, Eddie Arnold, Robert Rauchenberg, Layla Genser, Jessica Jacobs, Klaus Dinger, Norman Smith, Ivan Ribroff, Yegor Letov, and Henri Salvador. The best-selling album of 2008 was Lil Wayne's The Carter Three. Other artists having big years included Adele, Coldplay, Rick Ross, Alicia Keys, Madonna, Usher, Disturbed, Miley Cyrus, Amy Winehouse, Rihanna, Leona Lewis, Kings of Leon, Josh Groban, Taylor Swift, Janet Jackson, and the soundtracks to Twilight, Mamma Mia, and High School Musical 3. The biggest single of the year was Flo Rida and T-Pain with Low. 2008 was also the year that singer Akon did a cameo on a song to help out another singer who was just starting out, Lady Gaga, on her debut single, Just Dance. 2008 was the year that people first took notice of former religious music artist Katy Perry when her first big single, I Kissed a Girl, became one of the biggest hits of the year. 
Other big singles were by Coldplay, Leona Lewis, Rihanna, Madonna with Justin Timberlake, Jason Mraz, Pink, T.I., Jack Johnson, Duffy, and Kings of Leon. In country music, the media found out that singer Mindy McCready was having an affair with baseball icon pitcher Roger Clemens. Meanwhile, Shania Twain separated and eventually divorced her husband, superstar producer Mutt Lang, after it was found out that Mutt was having an affair with Shania's best friend. Country superstar Ann Murray gave her final concert and then retired after 40 years of performing. The biggest country albums of the year were by Brad Paisley with Play, Taylor Swift's Fearless, Sugarland's Love on the Inside, Lady Antebellum's self-titled album, Tim McGraw's Greatest Hits, Alan Jackson's Good Time, Toby Keith's That Don't Make Me a Bad Guy, Darius Rucker's Learn to Live, Jessica Simpson's Do You Know, and Kelly Pickler's self-titled album. The biggest country song of the year was Brad Paisley's Letter to Me. Brad also had the big hit, I'm Still a Guy. Taylor Swift had four of the top ten songs with You Belong to Me, White Horse, Fearless, and Love Story. Trace Atkins had You're Gonna Miss This. The Zac Brown Band had Chicken Fried. James Otto had Just Got Started Loving You. And Rodney Atkins had Cleaning This Gun. In hip-hop, Jay-Z stepped down as president of Def Jam Records and was replaced by record producer L.A. Reid. A few months after he left Def Jam, Jay-Z signed a $150 million deal with Live Nation, the first of what became known as 360 deals that encompass virtually everything about an artist's career from recording all the way through to merchandising and touring. Fat Joe and 50 Cent continued beefing throughout the year. Meanwhile, after feuding for three years, Big Boy of Outkast and Killer Mike of Run the Jewels stopped their beef. Killer Mike, for those who forgot, started his rap career appearing on Outkast's album Stankonia. Cancel culture took aim at hip-hop videos, specifically the TV network BET for playing hip-hop videos. Ultra-conservatives got companies like Pepsi, General Motors, and Procter & Gamble to pull their ads from the network. Just in case you thought only liberals were into cancel culture, nope. Both sides actually do it on the regular, and it's been going on for decades. It's nothing new. Lil Wayne's The Carter Three was the biggest hip-hop album of the year. Other big albums were T.I.'s Paper Trail, Jim Jones's Harlem's American Gangster, Webby's Savage Life 2, Kanye's 808s and Heartbreak, Shardy Lowe's Units in the City, Rick Ross's Trilla, Flo Rida's Mail on Sunday, Rocco's Self-Made, Snoop Dogg's Ego Trippin', Trina's Still the Baddest, The Roots's Rising Down, Bun B's Ill Trill, Lil Mama's VYP, and Ply's Definition of Real. While Lil Wayne's song Lollipop was a big hit, T.I. actually had the top two songs in hip-hop with Whatever You Like and Live Your Life. After Lollipop was Flo Rider's Low, Kanye's Love Lockdown, Jay-Z and T.I.'s Swagger Like Us, Lil Wayne's Amelie, T-Pain's Can't Believe It, Snoop Dogg's Sensual Seduction, and Flo Rider's In the Air.
On the dance charts, pop dance claimed nine of the top ten spots as Rihanna, Beyonce, Mariah Carey, Madonna, Neo, Britney Spears, Lady Gaga, and the Pussycat Dolls all dominated the charts. Bob Sinclair and Steve Edwards laid claim to the top dance club play spot with their song together. Other EDM artists who had hits were Danny Tenaglia with his song, The Space Dance, Mark Picciotti's Turn It Up, Christine W's The Boss, Ultranate's Give It All You Got, Eric Prids's club anthem, Pajano, Armin Van Buren's In and Out of Love, Afrojack's Drop Down, Morgan Page's The Longest Road, and the bingo players with Get Up. Rock music was in its pop-punk phase as artists like The Offspring, The All-American Rejects, and Fall Out Boy had big years. However, there was still room for more mainstream acts like Three Doors Down, Kings of Leon, and Nickelback along with Stained, The Killers, Disturbed, and Weezer. Latin music started the year in a bit of a rut. In fact, things were so bad that the Record Industry Association of America lowered its bar for exactly how many sales it took to have gold and platinum records in Latin genres. Little did they know that the explosion in Latin music that was actually going to happen about a decade later. The biggest Latin artists of 2008 were Wizen and Yandel, Vicente Fernandez, Marco Antonio Solis, Flex Enrique Iglesias, Aventura, Camila, Juanes, Capaz de la Sierra, Mania, and Luis Fonzi. At the Grammy Awards, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss were the big winners of the night with five awards. They won Album of the Year for the album Raising Sand. Record of the Year also went to them for their song, Please Read the Letter. Song of the Year went to Coldplay for Viva La Vida, and Adele won Best New Artist. Britney Spears won Video of the Year at the MTV Video Music Awards for the video, Piece of Me. At the American Music Awards, Rihanna and Chris Brown were the big winners. And the Billboard Music Awards, well, they were not held in 2008. In fact, they would make a comeback in 2010. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Belgrade, Serbia, Russia won that year. At the Tony Awards, In the Heights won Best Musical and South Pacific won Best Revival of a Musical. The 2008 Pulitzer Prize for Music went to David Lang for The Little Match Girl Passion, Stephen Hartke for Meanwhile, and Roberto Sierra for Concerto for Viola. At the Academy Awards for Music, Slumdog Millionaire won Best Original Score in the song Yai Ho from the movie won Best Original Song. In fact, that movie basically cleaned house that year, including Best Picture. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on March 10, 2008 at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. At the ceremony, harmonica player Little Walter was inducted into the Sidemen category. Songwriting and producing team Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff were inducted into the non-performers category. That year's class of inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame included Leonard Cohen, The Ventures, The Dave Clark Five, John Mellencamp, and this next artist. This artist is one of the biggest selling artists of all time. 
Her style, music videos, and frank talk about sex and sexuality have both shocked and influenced the past few generations. She's changed personas about as many times as David Bowie did. She is one of the queens of the dance music scene. Her nickname comes from a song on one of her biggest selling albums of all time. She is the woman who told Dick Clark in an interview before that particular album was released that her goal was to rule the world. That mission was accomplished with her second album. She is the material girl. She is Madonna. Madonna came up through the New York club scene in the late 1970s to early 1980s. She was actually the original lead singer of the 80s band The Breakfast Club, who had a hit album post-Madonna, and honestly it was mainly because of her and her boyfriend-slash-producer Jellybean Benitez's success, as Jellybean helped to produce both Madonna's and The Breakfast Club's first albums. Her first self-titled debut that Jellybean Benitez produced was a slow burn on the Billboard charts, yielding a couple of hit singles like Borderline, Holiday, and Lucky Star. She was determined to make her next album even bigger. She enlisted producer and lead guitarist for the group Chic, Nile Rodgers. Nile had just come off of producing David Bowie's Grammy Award-winning album, Let's Dance. Madonna wanted creative control over her new album, but a record label wasn't too keen on the idea, so they spent the money and hired Nile, much to Madonna's delight, as she was a huge fan of his and the group Chic. The album was recorded quickly at the Power Station Studios in New York City. Nile got Bernard Edwards and Tony Thompson of Chic to play on a lot of the tracks. Nile played guitar as well, so in essence, the album is sort of another Chic album, but with a new female singer. The album was recorded digitally, which wasn't popular at that time. Remember, this was the early 1980s. People were still playing video games on the Atari 2600. At least I was. Also, remember at this time that dance music was, by and large, on life support. The musical landscape consisted of new wave, corporate pop and rock music, and disco was officially dead. From the start of the album, Madonna had a game plan. She knew that in order to get noticed, you needed to push some buttons. In the 1980s, conservatism was huge. The moral majority ruled the public opinion and Ronald Reagan was president. Madonna knew that putting her sexuality out there was going to create controversy, a lot of it, especially once she mixed it with religion, which of course is not a controversial topic at all. Uh-uh. She managed to do all of this with songs like Like a Virgin, along with the iconic album cover of her in a wedding dress. She chose every song on the album to be hits. She didn't want any weak songs or filler, as she said. The album was finished in September of 1984, but couldn't be released because of her debut album, which was still continuing to sell pretty well at that point. The original release of this album had nine songs on it. In more recent reissues, the albums added the song Into the Groove, which was a huge hit off of the soundtrack to Madonna's movie Desperately Seeking Susan, which was around the exact same time period. In fact, it was during the filming of the Desperately Seeking Susan movie in New York City 
when Madonna went from being a sort of known singer having a few hit dance tracks to suddenly becoming a megastar who could no longer walk around the movie set without a trail of paparazzi and security following her. The album, Like a Virgin, debuted finally on November 12, 1984, but the single, Like a Virgin, had a different debut. On September 14, 1984, Madonna debuted the song at the MTV Video Music Awards, wearing that album cover wedding dress with the boy toy belt buckle and just basically all over the stage floor in a sexually charged performance. The audience was stunned. And, of course, controversy followed. Mission accomplished, buttons pushed. The album had five top five singles from it, Like a Virgin, Material Girl, Angel, Into the Groove, and Dress You Up. The album itself debuted at number 70 on the charts, but hit number one less than two months later. The album became the first female solo album to sell over 5 million copies in the United States. It has sold over 10 million copies to date, and even though it was her second album, it was the album that broke the doors wide open for her and turned her into an icon. After that, of course, came numerous albums and singles, celebrity relationships and marriages and divorces, and many reinventions, including officially delving into EDM on her Ray of Light and Confessions on a Dance Floor albums. She was on a world music kick on her last album. We'll see what she puts out this next time around. Overall, Madonna has put out 14 studio albums, all of which hit the top 10, with most of those going to number 1. She's put out 92 singles so far, with 36 of those going top 10. Now she's doing an autobiography and a documentary, along with maybe another tour. Recently, Madonna has caused controversy due to her outfits and appearance. What younger people who think that they invented the world tend to forget is that it was Madonna, along with Cher, who wore all of the wild outfits during a time of ultra-conservatism in Western society in the 1980s. It was Madonna who made wearing lingerie as club and outerwear popular. It was Madonna who helped to make it possible for women to openly celebrate their sexuality and use it as a strength rather than as a weakness. In short, it was Madonna who took the slings and arrows of the Christian conservative movement in the 1980s, so respect should be shown and also given to this trailblazer and trendsetter. Plus, she's in her mid-60s already. Wow, time sure flies. Presented for induction by Justin Timberlake, Madonna. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Class of 2008. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from.
This week, we're going to make the case for you to vote for the White Stripes to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Here's a few reasons why you should consider giving them your vote. First off, for those of you who only know the group from the Sports Stadium and EDM Festival staple Seven Nation Army, the White Stripes were a highly influential band in the early part of the century and set the tone for the garage rock revival of that first decade of this new century. The duo of Jack and Meg White plied their craft with a stripped-down sound and raw energy that inspired countless musicians and bands, including the Black Keys, the Strokes, and the Hives. The White Stripes brought a new level of authenticity and simplicity to rock music that resonated with audiences and helped to revitalize the genre. Second, the White Stripes were not only influential, but also commercially successful. The breakout album, White Blood Cells, went gold in the U.S. and the U.K. and helped to catapult the band into the mainstream. Their follow-up album, Elephant, was even more successful, debuting at number one on the U.K. charts and earning a Grammy Award for Best Alternative Music Album. The White Stripes sold millions of records worldwide and had a significant impact on the music industry. Third, the White Stripes were a highly innovative band, constantly pushing the boundaries of what was possible in rock music. They experimented with different instruments, sounds, and styles, incorporating elements of folk, blues, and country into their music. Their use of unconventional instruments, such as the marimba and the mandolin, added a unique dimension to their sound, and their creative visual aesthetic made them stand out from other bands of their time. Fourth, the White Stripes had a lasting impact on pop culture beyond their music. Their iconic red and white color scheme, which was incorporated into their album artwork, stage design, and even their clothing, became synonymous with the band and is still recognized around the world. Their music has also been featured in numerous films, TV shows, and commercials, cementing their place in pop culture history. Fifth, although this really shouldn't have anything to do with the nomination process, Jack White is one of the biggest musicologist musicians out there, along with Questlove from The Roots. Between the two of them, they probably know more about music history than the entire internet. My thought is that the hall should put the White Stripes in, but if they don't, then maybe they'll put Jack White in because of the work he's done as a music historian. Regardless, putting the White Stripes into the hall would be well-deserved, and you, yes you, can help get them in. Go to rockhall.com to vote. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M, of course. You can vote for five different nominees every day up until the end of April, very beginning of May. The link for voting is, of course, in the show notes. Back in 1980, the Blues Foundation decided to start inducting blues artists into its foundation's Hall of Fame wing. Much like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they inducted members long before they actually had a physical building. That changed when the Blues Hall of Fame and Museum opened on May 8, 2015. The museum is located at 421 South Main Street in Memphis, Tennessee. 
It is located less than two blocks away from the National Civil Rights Museum, which is what used to be the Lorraine Motel. The Lorraine Motel is famous for being the place where Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. The museum itself has 10 galleries, and as far as museums go these days, it's pretty updated with modern technology. There's interactive touchscreen displays and databases, unlike a lot of museums where those button displays never seem to work. We've all been to those museums. The museum is normally open Wednesday to Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sunday, 1 a.m. to 5 p.m. Admission is $10, which is extremely cheap for a museum these days. But, as with every museum these days, check with their website for ticket purchasing and information, especially for their most recent pricing and hours of operation. Blues.org is its website and we will put that link as well in the show notes. There is no denying Ray Charles's musical genius. He helped to invent soul music by combining rhythm and blues, jazz and gospel. He also helped to integrate country music with pop and R&B in order to help it cross over into the mainstream. According to Rolling Stone magazine, Charles is the second greatest singer of all time and the tenth greatest artist of all time. Ray was born on September 23, 1930 in Georgia. Ray's grandfather gave up custody of his mother Aretha to a family friend because Ray's grandmother had passed away and the grandfather couldn't afford to keep Ray's mother. That family friend named Bailey had an affair with Ray's mother which created a big scandal. Ray was actually the byproduct of that affair. Ray started to learn the piano at the age of three. By the age of five, he developed a case of glaucoma and became completely blind. His mother fought for Ray to go to a school for blind children in St. Augustine, Florida, but when Ray was 14, his mother passed away. He left school after the funeral. Ray first started playing piano for other people in Jacksonville, Florida, before moving to Orlando, Florida and doing the same thing, although at that point, the playing opportunities had dried up because it was post-World War II and all the soldiers had gone back home. Ray found it tough going for a while, sometimes going without food. He also had enough of playing for other people and wanted to have his own band. Ray followed a friend of his out to Seattle, Washington, but not before recording a few songs, which are the earliest known recordings of his. In Seattle, a couple of things happened that would have a consequence on popular music. The first was that he befriended a 15-year-old boy at that time named Quincy Jones. The legendary Q would end up being lifelong friends with Ray and would work with him with Quincy making his own impact on music, including producing the biggest selling album of all time worldwide, Michael Jackson's Thriller. The second thing was that Ray finally got to start with his own traveling band. In 1949, Ray had his first major hit called Confession Blues. A few more hits came along and Ray started making a name for himself. After a few years of being on smaller labels, he signed a record deal with Atlantic Records, which made him pretty successful. He still didn't quite have a lot of crossover success. Two things changed that. One was a song and the other was an album. In 1959, Charles was 10 years into his career. 
he and his band were playing a show one night in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. He was playing what was known at the time as meal shows, where you'd play for a couple of hours, take a break, then play for a couple more hours. On this particular night, the band had played through their second set way too quickly and had about 12 minutes to kill. Charles had to think fast, so he told the band to start playing a fast blues beat and to follow what he did. He started playing a simple melody, made up words that really didn't make any sense, and did a call and response with his backup singers. The audience went wild when the song was done. Charles decided to record the song after that. In February of 1959, Charles went into the studio to record the song at Atlantic Records Studio. The song, What I Say, was one of two that they recorded that day, and it was recorded in four takes with no overdubs. That was because the band had played it enough during their tour that they didn't actually need to work it out in the studio, thankfully. Saves money. There were a few problems with what I'd say, though. The first was that the original version of the song was over seven minutes long. They decided to cut the song into two parts. Part two is the more famous part. The second was that there were some phrases in the call and response parts that were deemed questionable by 1959 standards, such as shake that thing. Those parts were cut out so the song wouldn't get banned. Even still, the song was banned for a time, not only for some lyrics, but also because it had a gospel feel. Gospel being done by secular artists did not wash in 1959, not even remotely close. Of course, what the parents hated, the kids ate up and turned this song into a crossover smash. Soon, even British bands started playing it. The song is considered the song that birthed soul music. Plus, it's a pretty cool song to dance to, truth be told. While Ray was signed with Atlantic Records, he achieved major success by combining soul, gospel, and the blues. In the middle of 1959, Ray switched record labels to ABC Paramount Records after getting an extremely above average, for its time at least, record deal. This contract gave him better royalties, much better royalty rate, as a matter of fact, and also his master tapes, eventually making him one of the first black musicians to have that much control over his music and career. Smart man. Ray also continued having big hits, like the songs Georgia On My Mind and Hit the Road Jack. In 1962, he recorded what turned out to be considered one of the greatest albums in music history. Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music was Ray's experiment with country music. At the time he recorded it, racial segregation was at its peak and the civil rights movement was in full swing. Racial tensions were at a boiling point, so for a black artist to do what a lot of people considered and still consider white music did not sit well with a lot of people, including some of the people on his own record label. Nonetheless, Ray pursued his idea. Once he signed an extension to his contract, he and his band got down to business. He recorded and produced the album on February 5th and 7th at Capitol Studios in New York City and at United Western Recorders in Hollywood, California on February 15th. That was it. Three whole days. None of this taken five years to record an album like some artists do. 
The album was a bunch of cover songs. However, Ray put his twist on them, including using a big band sound at times with lush string arrangements. Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music was released in April of 1962 and, thanks to a whole lot of marketing, became a huge seller right out of the gate. It spawned four hit singles, with each of them becoming big hits on the adult contemporary, country, and pop charts. In the process, Ray helped to bring country music into the mainstream. The album itself won Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards. Ray continued his career, but there were some bumps along the way, as always. He was arrested a few times for drugs. The last time made him go into rehab. Listen, it was either that or do time in jail, so guess which one he chose. Thankfully, it helped to get him off the drugs, finally. Drugs didn't derail his career for a time, though. The changing music scene in the late 1960s and 70s was the thing that actually did that. A funny thing happened, though. As time went on, Ray became respected and even revered. He began getting inducted into a lot of Hall of Fames, including being one of the first people to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with winning more than a few legacy awards. All of the newfound love allowed him to have a career resurgence, during which he won another Grammy Award for Album of the Year, this time in 2004. There was also a movie based on his life called Ray, with Jamie Foxx winning an Academy Award for Best Actor for playing Ray. Ray Charles passed away from liver failure on June 10th, 2004. The Genius Mr. Ray Charles, inducted into the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame, Class of 1982. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>